we talking about feet, John? Sure, if you guys want oh, to. Oh, by the I... way, is this like tapping I'm doing on the desk coming through? Yes. All right, I'll stop that then. If you want to, in fact, if you want to know if it's coming through, I believe if you look at the little representation of you on the screen, you can see the little swells around the edges when it. I don't have my own representation. Oh, you don't? No. That's that's unjust. <laughs> you should control your own representation. Anyway, um, yeah. Do you want to talk about it? So sure. I'm a little. I I, I was beforehand. I was jotting down some notes about how to um, get into this because here's the thing. There's a lot of non-sociology before we get to at the end. I think a sort of big chunk of stuff that we can talk about. So um, I will proceed the best I can and just feel free to interrupt me. How's tell that us sound? a story. I'll tell you a story. It's a history of shoes. <laughs> um, so. Basically, you know, the, the running shoes, right? Early running shoes. I mean, people obviously ran, have been running for a long, 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 long time. And running shoes throughout the 20th century started as really thin, lightweight, uh, you know, made of like, you know, canvas and a thin rubber sole, basically. Thin shoes. And then basically, I think around the 60s on, uh, running shoes changed dramatically. So what running shoes are today, generally, if you go to a running shoe store and you look at most of the shoes they offer, they have a bunch of things in common. They have a you know big, cushy, lots of cushion, right? Um, and then they usually have a lifted heel. So the heel is this big, fat piece of rubber, cushioned rubber that sits under your heel. Um, they usually are very supportive and restrictive in terms of your motions. So they've got hard sort of like plastic arches and supports to guide your feet in a straight line, right? And this is kind of the, um, you know, traditional running shoe over the last generation or two of runners, right? And it's also pretty unusual, um, you know, historically, right? This is, a, this is a new phenomenon. Why did they start, why did shoes change so drastically a couple decades ago? And, you know, the argument is that running is dangerous and people get hurt, so you need these shoes to protect you, right? Um, so if you're going to be a serious runner and start running, you want to protect yourself. You don't want to get hurt. So you go and you go to the running shoe store and you get a fancy expensive pair of shoes that offers you all this cushion and support. And when you go out and you run the first time and I'm like, ah, these feel great. Um, and that's what running shoes are. So in the last, I don't know, 15, 10, 15 years or so, there's been kind of a backlash against this, um, sort of looking at evidence, which is that a, uh, lots of runners still get injured. Um, I mean, it's a ridiculously high percentage of runners in any given year report being injured and down for some point, right? Because um, so, people are running more, though, right? Well, uh, we don't know. Um, compared to what? <laughs> we'll get to that. But I mean, like that. Well, so, but but bottom line is, running shoes, if they're supposed to prevent injury, they don't work very well, or at least they're not they're not working as well as they should be. And um, you know, a lot of people looking at sort of the history and saying, why is it that? the best runners in, you know, the, the first half of the 20th century before fancy shoe technology came along, how come they seem to do fine? And, you know, we don't have perfect data on this, but it doesn't seem like they got injured any more often than, than runners get injured now. Um, so people started kind of blaming the shoes and saying, realizing it, and it's true, like when you wear traditional, you know, heavy, thick, cushioned motion control running shoes, it changes the way you run. Um, in kind of obvious ways, if you think about it. So, you know, if you go and you, and you take your shoes off and you go in your backyard or whatever, and you just run for, a, you know, a run down the sidewalk or whatever, um, you know, you land usually on the front or midfoot region of your foot. Um, 
you ran, you land pretty lightly because it hurts otherwise. Um, and you know, you sort of like land under your center of gravity. You don't kick your foot way out and take these huge strides because it hurts. So you sort of take shorter strides, you land on your mid to forefoot and you kind of use your arch, your Achilles tendon and your calf and your, your knee, you know, your whole leg sort of compresses and springs back to keep you moving. Right. Um, on the other hand, you put, you know, this, these sort of heavy cushioned shoes on and you see pictures of this. If you look at pictures of people running, especially like in shoe advertisements, even like this is the way they advertise people running. You see people take longer strides and they kick their foot out in front of them and they land on the heel, you know, the big cushy part and then sort of roll forward onto their forefoot and then bounce off. So you've got a really different style of running. Um, so, so shoes have made possible a different style of running and exactly. people are now running differently. Exactly. And it's, and I guess the idea is that this different style of running is actually leading to more injuries. Exactly. So, I mean, just like my, my sort of how personally I got into this is kind of interesting. Well, it's interesting to me, of course. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but I started running cross country my freshman year in high school and I did pretty well my first year. And, but I ended up not racing in the last race of the year because I had a recurring problem with shin splints that gradually became a stress fracture in the, the sort of front of my, um, leg what's that what's that bone called uh shin my shin <laughs> <laughs> yes good one um tibia fibia something like that i don't know you know um those so, are super painful yeah it was it was painful and i couldn't run and then you know and it healed but as part of my you know recuperation i went to a you know a sports doctor and they looked at the way i ran and they looked at my feet and they said oh well you need um you know you need orthotics so what happened is my right leg is actually i guess a little bit shorter than my left leg okay um so they were saying the result of that is that the way my feet are hitting the ground is causing you know this this increased you know uh, uh pressure on my right leg which is causing these shin splints right so you need to get some custom orthotics made. So I got these heavy duty custom orthotics made and you're buying the wrong kinds of shoes. The first time it was first time I ran. So I just went and bought a pair of shoes that I thought looked cool. Right. I didn't like, and felt good. You know, it's not like I had a specific kind of running shoe I wanted. I didn't know what I was doing. So they said, here's what you need. You need these, these heavy duty motion control shoes. Right. And you've seen these, like the running shoes that have the big rigid, you know, hard plastic things along the outside edges and your, and your arches to sort of keep your foot level and flat. Yeah. And um, they're usually pretty heavy and they've got a big chunk of rubber under the heel. Um, So I started wearing those. I started wearing those with the orthotics. And basically that is what I wore all through high school, college, all like the whole, you know, in fact, if you've seen me uh, until the last six months or so, odds are that's the kind of running shoe I was wearing. And, you know, because that's that's basically all I could wear. Um, It got to where if, you know, I had these these heavy lifts under my arches and these big you know, cushy running shoes. And if I had to wear dress shoes for a day, it just killed my feet. And wow. of course I, I blame the fact, well, I've got messed up feet. You know? And, and were you running were too at this time? Yeah. Or, yeah. Just... I've always, I've always been running. I mean, I go, I go, um, I go through phases where I've run more or less. I've never gotten back to where I'm running as much as I was in high school or anything, but I've, and I've been a consistent runner. And did you have runner. special shoes just for the running as opposed to walking around in running shoes? No, that's or what I was just saying. I wore shoe. my running shoes as my main shoes, right? Isn't that bad, though? Like, aren't you supposed to have, like, a specific well, yeah, running I mean, pair? You're and... so, well, I mean, it's a good idea, I guess, but it's not like, you know, but, it, it, you know, whatever. I mean, that's what I was wearing because that's what was comfortable to me. Regular shoes would hurt my feet. You know, my arches would get sore. You know, I just, you know, my, my legs would hurt. 
And I thought, well, it's because I got these messed up feet and these, these screwed up legs that are the wrong length or whatever. So I need these orthotics. Um, but anyway, I, I got, I just got fed up with it because I, I was still having injuries, you know, like shin splints and, you know, sort of a weird kind of like dull pain in my like, legs and my back and everything like recurring problems. It's just always been what I thought was just part of running. Um, so earlier this year or so I was looking for a new pair of shoes, right. And sort of stumbled upon this whole movement, this whole backlash against the traditional running shoe. Um, so I started reading up on it and following it. And it's a very interesting thing because as, uh, you know, there's, as in a lot of cases, there's kind of a continuum, right? There are people who, um, say, well, you know, the traditional running shoes are just fine, but for a lot of people, they don't need all that cushion. And yeah, it does kind of change the way you run and they could benefit from going to a more minimalist shoe. So there's this whole lineup of more minimalist running shoes right now. So like I bought a pair from New Balance that has a relatively thin sole. The heel is, is not, there's not much of a, so like, I think they say like normal running shoes have something like a 16 millimeter lift from forefoot to heel. So like, you know, when you're sitting, you know, when you're standing up on the, on the floor and you're barefoot, you're, there's zero, uh, millimeter drop between your forefoot and rear and, and, uh, the, your heel, right? Uh, normal running shoes, it's something like 16 millimeters. So it lifts your heel up quite a bit. Uh, these have like four millimeters or something, right? So there's this whole line of minimalist running shoes you can get now. And they're lighter, they're more flexible, they have a lower heel. That's like the uh, sort of defining characteristics of it. And then, of course, you guys have probably seen like the the, the Vibram five-finger shoes, the toe shoes, right? Right. Yeah. 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 You, you'll see some freak wearing those out in public, right? Um, <laughs> and then the idea behind those is it's kind of similar. There are these really thin soles that's supposed to, you know, basically provide protection, but otherwise feel exactly as if you're, you're barefoot. And then there's barefoot running and sort of this barefoot running movement. People saying that, you know, this is, this is the way to run. You don't need shoes. Um, and you know, your feet are actually perfectly equipped to run just fine for, you know, long distances and, you know, that's the way to go. Um, so the interesting thing about all this, so first of all, I'll say, I'll say a couple things. One, it's actually really worked for me. Like, uh, I mean, I've, I've wear completely changed the kind of shoes I wear and I can actually wear normal shoes now. So I don't just have to wear running shoes all the time. Cause I got used to wearing shoes without crazy arch supports and huge heel lifts in them. Um, and it's actually expanded the range of shoes I can wear. Cause I don't need a very, my, my feet aren't corrupted by a specific type of shoe now. Um, so you went through the minimalist shoe. You didn't go yeah. all bare out. Well, just well, went. see, that's what I have now. And that's why I've been running in for about six months now. And, and was like I have, the first time you ran was that pretty uh, painful? Oh yeah, it's totally different because the thing is you can't you can't you know like like I was saying normally when you run in a traditional running shoe what most people do is that you sort of stick your foot out in front of you and then you land on your heel and yeah. if you try that in shoes that don't have massive heels or barefoot for that matter it hurts you can't do it <laughs> um, so you naturally end up sort of shortening your stride and sort of jogging a little more you know or yeah you know, uh, that's the wrong word but. Um, so yeah, I went through this period where like I'd run a mile and my calves were killing me, you know, or even just, just walking. Like I said, I'm not going to wear these shoes anymore. I'll try wearing the shoes without my orthotics in them. So take out all the arch support. And it took like a good week before my arches didn't hurt and burn, you know? Um, but I got used to it pretty quick and I did actually, I have actually on, on several occasions ran up to a mile and a half, I think, is the most I've done uh, barefoot on my treadmill. 
So, and it's a, to- it's a really weird, different feeling if you're used to running, you know, like you think you've been running your entire life and you know how to run. Uh, so it, it's kind of like, you know, break down something you've been doing for, in my case, like 15, 16 years now and completely change the way you do it. Um, and so it's been interesting, but it's been mostly a positive experience. Um, I get sore. So like my calves have hurt as I've sort of been transitioning into this and my feet hurt in different ways. Cause you're using, you know, basically you're using your foot a lot more. You're making your arch and your Achilles tendon and your calves do a lot more of the work as opposed to putting all the pressure onto the shoe, which absorbs the shock, but then just sends it straight back up your leg to your knee, to your hips, to your back. Right. Um, but I've had zero of the shin splint problems and heel problem or hip problems or knee problems or any of those things I used to have. I have muscle soreness because it was a hard workout, but that goes away and gets better as I do it. Um, so anecdotally speaking for myself, this makes a lot of sense, you know, and you know, uh, here's where it gets interesting though, is that this is a, this is a social movement. Basically there's kind of a movement behind this. You know, you've got kind of the radical wing, the barefoot runners, and uh, then you've got, sort of the more moderate sort of corporate, you know, Nike makes a shoe called Nike free that's supposedly inspired by this, you know, sort of movement and all the major, major shoe manufacturers are kind of slowly coming on board with this because they see it's a market to fulfill. And there are very mainstream runners saying that this makes sense too. Right. Um, so I guess what's, you know, thinking about this then as a sociologist, I, or even just even my, as my own, as, as a person with biases against certain kind of movements, I see this as a certain kind of movement, right? There's, there's, and, and I don't know the right way to characterize this, but something I tend to refer to as the cult of the natural, right? Mm-hmm. Where, and you yeah. see this in a bunch of things. So you can look at food and you see sort of the organic food movement, raw food, slow food, you know, whatever. Uh, there's this, this set of technology podcasts I listen to. This guy's a, an advocate of the paleo diet. Have you guys heard of this? Yeah, I, I don't really understand it, but I've heard the name. It's apparently becoming more and more popular. He hosts a podcast on the net. I've never gotten into this. So I don't quite understand it. But the idea is basically you go back to eating like people ate before the agricultural revolution. So a lot, right. so less grains, less dairy, basically. Hmm. Um, and but but you know, and then you see it with medicine. You know, of course. So there's alternative medicine, natural yeah. medicine, the, the yeah. sort of anti-vaccine movement, the natural mm-hmm. childbirth people. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and and health and exercise. You know, you have sort of like yoga and, and meditation, you know, sort of having these like natural evoking all these natural things, right? Where natural is good. Um, and then, you know, the, the sort of industrial alternative that was that, that science and progress tells us is better is actually horrible and misguided and, and bad for us and, and suspect, right? And so there are some common themes in all of these things, you know, um, there's, they're all, not coincidentally, I think, tied to the body in some way, you know, something to do with our bodies and what we put into our bodies and how our bodies are supposed to function with in interaction with the physical objects around us. Um, And then there's also this sort of strong uh, sort of purity, logic of purity going on, you know, where nature is pure and good and, uh, you know, science and progress is bad, right? So this is the sort of thing that, first of all, I'm I'm usually, uh, I think, there's a, there's a couple of You're cynical to towards about. it. I'm very cynical towards this yeah, stuff, right? Yeah. Um, like, it scares the crap out of me that my kid's going to school with 
with other kids whose parents probably didn't get them vaccinated <laughs> because they think they're going to give their kid autism or something ridiculous like that. It scares the crap out of me. Right? Well, and, well, I was going to say, I think this is a good experience for you in one way because I, I actually have a cynicism towards some of this stuff as well, but I do think it, it's a mistake to just dismiss it as like naive yeah. kind of well that's just it you know it, like some of there's some truth to it you know and i think as sociologists it actually sometimes points to the um i don't know the downside of modernization that we can innovate all these new technologies that make certain things possible but all these conveniences and opportunities that they create they also have all, all of these unintended consequences and i think like the the shoe example is a great example of that i mean i actually i actually think we just run too much um and but mm. i'm probably wrong about this but like you know my fiance she runs a lot and she loves running marathons and now that she's a resident she doesn't have the time to do it and she was always trying to get me to do running and um we watched this nova special a couple of years ago where you know they're trying to do an experiment to see if anybody can run uh, a marathon, and they pretty much figured out that most people can't and should not run marathons, um, <laughs> and that like there's a certain body type that you know my fiance has, and and she is a good runner, but um, people shouldn't be running as much as they should, and perhaps you know shoes make it possible that you can kind of run longer than you otherwise would, and maybe that creates more injuries, but. At least this Nova example was just showing that, like, the preparation towards running a marathon, just the sheer number of miles you run in the six months prior to um, a marathon, is an extreme amount of wear and tear on the body. Uh, well, and and so I think that that's kind of interesting, you know, because you know my, my fiance is a doctor, and she's like, I wish I could get all my patients to run um, and and do this thing, and I'm like, well, I don't know, maybe their body types just aren't meant to run as much as we think one should run so so um, there's there is a there is a course a response to this line of uh of argument uh, from the the sort of barefoot running people right who's the the born to run crowd right so this i think we were mentioned <laughs> this before we started recording there's a a popular book that sort of galvanized this movement called born to run by a journalist christopher mcdougall right yep and what he he did is he he goes. To, I, I haven't actually read the book, but I've like there's a TED talk, so I basically read the book. I saw the TED talk. Um, he was I, in John Stewart. I, I've read the book too. Then, <laughs> um, but you know, he goes to a you know a group of people, the Tarahumara, right? Who are this who who are sort of a tribe in Mexico, right? That run like crazy, and they run either barefoot or in sandals that they make from discarded tires, basically. And they just run a lot. And, uh, you know, the, the argument, you know, and, and the argument that he makes is that, you know, the part of the uh, uh, ecological niche that humans fill is that we're runners, right? Um, we can run for a long distance and we can basically outrun, uh, you know, he's got, it's this whole like, uh, you know, caveman evolution argument going, but. <laughs> that I have a sort of a limited stomach to explain in detail. Um, but 
but that's the argument is that people actually are, uh, you know, born to run, so to speak. And that, you know, it's, it's society and it's these heavy shoes and it's being told that we're no good and only that the elite few who can run quickly and run, you know, and have a certain body type can run when everyone can actually run. And what people do wrong is that, you know, we're too competitive about running. So we, we run, we run too fast. Um, and it's, you know, we, we try to run too much too soon as opposed to making it a fun activity that you, you know, do a little bit at a time for your entire life. And it's right. just part of the way you live. It's not, it's not a hobby that you do to compete and lose weight and, you know, have the perfect body and win competitions. Um, and so this, this competitive spirit has corrupted something that is naturally human. That is running. Um, that's, like, that's kind of the counter argument yeah, to like, that. Right. Like people don't run. Well, no, I, 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 no, I actually agree with that. I mean, cause like it, what I'm trying to say is like, it's, we're not running away from dinosaurs and I know that humans didn't exist with dinosaurs, but we're not running away from like <laughs> big animals sure. trying to eat us <laughs> running from the, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex or anything like that. Or we're not running to a village or, or back. We're running like specific set miles at arbitrary times because we feel like we should, like we should run 10 miles today or five miles today because that's it's it's kind of a prescribed amount and i guess like um i would imagine there was a time people would run until they didn't want to run because it was too painful to run and they would acknowledge the pain signals and stop running whereas now there are you can can take aspirin or tylenol there's weird stretches you can do you can ice your leg so that you can prepare yourself to run more the next day and I, i my argument i guess is that you know certain body types shouldn't run as much but it's it's more of like the fundamental argument is that like technology allows us to do certain behaviors more than we otherwise would yeah, and i think see, that's what benefits. i'm saying is that the the, ar- the the counter argument to that is that that what you just said is wrong it's not that it's not that technology enables us to do something more than we would it's that it changes the way we do it and might actually change it negatively for a lot of the population and discourage the use of something uh, that that they could do just fine without it. it makes them think that they need the, the the shoes to do it. So, for example, the argument about getting hurt and the technology allowing us to run further than we might if we're injured is that you know that's one of the arguments that people make for running in less shoe, basically, or no shoe, is that you feel things a lot more, and you 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 know the the, the sensors in your foot and you know the the muscles and everything in your foot and your leg are much more responsive when they don't have these massive you know hunks of rubber between them and the road and they can actually feel what's going on and they can feel pain and adapt accordingly and you know like like they they take uh people and have them run on treadmills with shoes without shoes and you know whatever and and various styles of shoes and find that people with shoes they're actually a exert a much more um there's much more pressure uh run much heavier than people without shoes right so I'm saying that it's more complicated than just that the technology lets people do it more. It's that the technology changes the way people do it. And in some ways, it may be harmful. In some ways, it may be good, you know. Um, but it's, I, I just don't, I don't think it's as simple as that. Well, but I'm not let's saying take, it's let's simple. T- let's take it to, I don't know. Chris, have you been quiet? Do you have anything to add? Not to put you on the spot. I'm just curious before uh, I change the subject. I, I do have something to say, but it's, I don't think now is the right time. It's more of a, it's something you said at the start of this conversation and I think is interesting and it might be a way to, to get us out of the conversation towards a different one, um, which has to do with the, the, the naturalist, what is the cult of the natural is what ah, you called it? I that's think? where I was going to take it. So I wanted to, bring, okay, I wanted so to step back from running and get to that more generally. 
Yeah. You know? Because that's what's interesting to me is that there's this is a common thread that runs and, and it's not, you know, you, you will certainly find a lot of people that independently find their way into any one or two or three of these things. But it's a surprisingly large number of people who you find that are s- sort of susceptible, if that's not too cynical of a way to put it. To <laughs> that is all way of these too things. cynical of a way to put it. No, I mean, like, <laughs> like, there's a whole lifestyle, right, where you, you know. And, sure, and, but and, and I don't think it's, get, and, and you're saying added. it as though these people have been brainwashed. No, 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 no. I don't mean Susceptible? it that way. I don't mean it that way. I mean, maybe I do, <laughs> but I don't mean it that way. Well, um, but that's what I was saying. This is a good experience for you because I think, because I actually agree with some of the cynicism that I do pe- do think people are susceptible to this kind of fetization of going back to a, a more simpler time. I mean, I think that narrative is persuasive, but I do think sometimes they're correct. Like, um, you know, my brother has Crohn's disease and like he was battling it for like the last three years and he was in all these antibiotics and, you know, was doing all these complicated procedures and he was getting sicker and sicker. And I actually met this sociologist at the ASA who was, you know, into medicalization and she was extremely cynical of the uh, medical establishment. And when she found, when I was telling her about my brother's Crohn's disease, she was like, oh, I got a talk to him right away you know the medicine that he's taking is killing him um and i was like okay you're kind of crazy (laughs) but i um i gave her my brother's email and she actually like went to the trouble and emailed my brother and said listen your doctors are giving you all these antibiotics that are probably making you more sick it's your diet and this is what you need to do you need to restrict your diet to the following things and my brother actually did it and um he is actually much, much better <laughs> than he was um, two years ago. And like one of the things that he did was literally just like change doctors and got off of you know all the different antibiotics that he was on and went into this extremely rigid diet. And he like professes that like, you know, this woman, random woman at the ASA like changed his life dramatically. And um, it's made me rethink like, wow, she seems kind of crazy to me still, <laughs> but it seems like, um, you know, there's some truth to it and that sometimes we have all these, you know, technologically advanced interventions um, that have some unintended consequences. And, and that's kind of the crux of some medicalization scholarship, right? That like there's benefits to technology, but there's some shortcomings as well. Yeah, I mean – that's actually interesting. My my dad has Crohn's, so um, I have a. a Let's wait for this large yeah, machine. What, what is pass. that? Oh, sorry, airplane. Uh, Technology, <laughs> damn you! <laughs> if we just used hand gliders, things would be so much better. If we could just run everywhere. Um. Oh, I was just saying, my my dad has Crohn's, so this is interesting to me because I've talked to him about this and you know diet and how big of a difference that can make and and you know like I mentioned this like paleo diet. You know, I'm not like I've. Since I listen to podcasts with people who are into this, I've heard bits and pieces about it. And there are people who swear up and down they had allergies their entire life. They felt like crap. They were tired. They were always hungry. And then ever since, you know, cutting, you know, cutting out dairy and grains and going to this paleo, they've they've completely, they feel like a new person, right? And it's hard to, you know, you can't completely discount that, right? Yeah. 
And, yeah. you know, it's very possible that there, are, you know, you could, you could say, well, actually, you know, if we knew enough, we could say that there are just specific allergies to very, spe- you know, very specific allergies that are causing these problems. And it's not, it's not living, you know, eating like a caveman or something that's going to make you healthy. It's, it's there, there, there are good reasons for it. You know, I, I don't know. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying to me, the point isn't whether or not, uh, the natural is good people are always right or always wrong. In certain cases, it makes sense that, yeah, some of this is going to be legitimate, some of it isn't. Obviously, technology changes, and the state of the art with respect to medicine and health changes a lot over time, and we learn more, and what is conventional wisdom changes. That's, that's a different question, I think. I think we can just take it as a, as a starting point that some of it is probably legitimate, some of it is probably crazy. But what I think is interesting is that there is, and I said susceptibility, not necessarily, I wasn't trying to be cynical about it. I mean, like, literally, these are contagious ideas that mm-hmm. some people just latch onto. Like, it doesn't yeah. matter if it's right. It doesn't right. matter if there's research and evidence showing that this diet, this special diet is what we need, or that um, only eating this organic, all-natural food, or only taking this kind of medicine... Uh, whether or not it's effective or not is almost besides the point for, for the purposes of studying it as a movement and as a cultural phenomenon, right? Um, and that's what I'm interested in, um, if that makes sense. No, yeah. that's that's the kind of medicalization frame. Actually, they kind of say we don't know if yeah, except these they don't are real mean diseases. It. They're all hippies and they accept it all, and that's just their <laughs> way to legitimize it. To the I'm just kidding, mostly. Um, no, no, but I actually no, I I agree with that position. I actually think that there is like this anti-medicine bias to it and people aren't forthcoming about it. And I think that can be problematic in some ways because they say we suspend our own beliefs that certain medicines work and certain medicines don't work. And I'm like, well, when you talk about medicine outside of the context of how it really affects people, it becomes a weird discussion sometimes. Um, and you know, like I discuss this stuff with my fiance all the time because she's a doctor and, you know, she always comes back to this issue of like, well, is it curing people or is there are people dying? And, you know, sometimes I'm like, yeah. well, that's not the issue. <laughs> see, yeah. And, see, and that's the twist. That's the twist that bothers me too, is the suspension of disbelief, you know, because to me, right. I don't think that's necessary. Right. I mean, I can say or possible always, you know, or possible. I mean, you know, to me, it, uh, you know, like take. Take the case of running, right? You can make a case as to why the natural it's it's why is why is running like this better? Not because it's natural, right? Uh, that's not a reason. That's not a sufficient reason, right? Um, there's logic. You can walk through people through evidence of of you know lots of evidence of injuries and you know uh, details about running form and how it changes in different sorts of with different sorts of, of shoes on your feet or whatever and you can make a case on any of these things independently of appealing to nature as this benevolent figure that somehow knows right and we shouldn't question unless we really know what we're doing right that's the part right. that i have a problem with with all is is it's not right because it's natural i mean it, it might be right, you know uh, maybe that makes it more appealing and that becomes kind of a, a marketing gimmick on the one hand or maybe just a feature of the subculture that makes certain people more susceptible, more more open to it. I don't know. Um, yeah. And, you know, Peter Conrad actually in his in one of his books, he actually talks about this issue explicitly and he says out front like, you know, I'm not a naturalist because what we consider natural is always changing too. Like a lot of, you know, ideas about natural foods or a natural way of doing something actually is a human 
uh, innovation in and of itself. It, we just might not know it, what it is because it seems natural to us. So I think that's that's sometimes acknowledged as well. Like the the idea of the natural um, can change across context. Oops. Is it is it what do you what do nudists call themselves? Are they naturists or naturalists? I've heard naturalist more than see because that's what I was hoping. Anyway, I I mean Peter, I, whatever. <laughs> it's it's important not to always read too much into the semantics. I was just trying to avoid that label because I didn't know what the right I didn't yeah, want to yeah, you know yeah. give the wrong idea here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's Conrad also interesting in terms of the all of the many areas of of social and cultural life where we can see people developing some sort of to use the term naturalist approach to things or natural solution or response, whatever you want to call it. Um, I don't know. There's this, there seems to be this refusal to look forward Mm -hmm. and this is generalizing way too much from available evidence, but it's fun to think about. Yeah. One of the hallmarks of, you know, academia, the world of ideas since post-structuralism has been, well, we, we are really good at deconstructing the present and the past but we're really terrible at dealing with the future, mm-hmm. which is weird because so many sciences now are so much involved in the predictive and trying to get really better at, at computer modeling predictions and so on and so forth. But the overall idea guiding it is this, you know, we, we're constantly looking backwards for solutions instead of trying to construct something going forward. And I think that's really funny. The place where I see it is in music where a lot of people I know who – really don't like the you know either the crass commercialism or the politics or whatever it might be in contemporary music instead of trying to find uh, a contemporary alternative to it instead of making their own music just go back to the Beatles and Bob Marley and I never really understood why but maybe it does fit in with this larger I you know notion of of this naturalist thing yeah, but there's like I think we've talked about the search of authenticity. You know, like what is the authentic, um, the true nature of something? And you know, um, like when I was playing music in um, in Minneapolis, I was in these Brazilian drumming groups. Right. And we used to talk like something that's kind of big in the United States here is capoeira, which is the kind of uh, Afro-Brazilian martial arts dancing. Um, that you see in northeast of Brazil, like it's becoming very popular here in the states, and there's all these different capoeira groups, right? And but they're really antagonistic towards each other, and they all fight about which one is the correct capoeira and which one is the authentic one, and which one is like some kind of perverse, you know, adaptation with all these weird American influences, you know, but. The dance itself was just something that was created, <laughs> you know. It was slaves, you know dancing but really trying to fight and it's not a particularly effective form of fighting it turned out as well you know but (laughs) it's it's very beautiful and it takes a lot of skill but there is no true form of it you know in a way i mean maybe that i'm sounding kind of Uh, in that way but it's weird to me that these groups fight so you know you just see them when they show up at some meeting that there's there's kind of clans and they talk about which one is the real capoeira and which one right, is not right. and it's in like, all well, these things there's always this well the the old natural one that we've found that we're reinvigorating as the solution is you know it, it's weird that everything else 
in life is telling us that you know things change and it's important to consider how things have changed and will change but whenever we do these these backward glances it's always in these pure states where they're frozen in time yeah and yeah, it exactly. makes such little sense that I, I just don't get it like you you can't account for creativity in any of these models <laughs> right and and there's a similar parallel story i think with talking about something that's natural it's like well we're coming back to this pure state um, right. that we've we've moved away from and we have to figure out what's the really true natural way of doing this and you know like natural childbirth i think is also interesting because like something that's occurred to me when i go to conferences too and i tell people about my fiance like sometimes you know i've had people tell me like well yeah you know your fiance is getting trained incorrectly about oh, how nice. to deliver birth in a natural way and I'm like, oh, yeah, not like a sociologist who have had extensive training in, you know, nothing. <laughs> you know? <laughs> We've read a lot of books about it, though. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Why don't you tell me? And then I can tell my fiance about why she's trained incorrectly on this. <laughs> and I've thought about what is a natural – I'm not an expert on this. But, like, I do think, you know, childbirth is extremely dangerous, you know. And it's a naturally dangerous phenomenon, you know. And yeah. humans have – created certain innovations to make it less dangerous. Um, and I'm not saying that C-sections is great, and I'm not saying that C-sections aren't done in a sensitive way, and I'm not saying that, you know, maybe it shouldn't be done as much. But, you know, childbirth historically has been very dangerous that, like, 150 years ago, it was not uncommon for, I don't know, a third of women to die during childbirth, you know. And that's not a, a result that we're okay with in modern society. So we have adapted technologies to make it, you know, less dangerous. And who knows if a hundred years from now, we even think that we shouldn't even have childbirth and everybody should be grown in, you know, some lab somewhere. In a too. vat. In a vat. <laughs> exactly. So is and your, like, is your fiance, is she an OBGYN? No, but when she was doing rotations, um, she was telling me a lot about it. And so I would, you know, was telling people at the conference and yeah. somebody corrected me and like, well, you know, they don't know that you should really do childbirth standing up or in the, yeah. in the bath yeah. and stuff like that. And and my like, my oh. wife's a labor and delivery nurse too. So we oh, talk, we talk okay. about this a lot, you know, and she comes home with stories that, I mean, it just amazes me sometimes. Like we deal, like academics deal with like uh, pissed off grads or pissed off undergrads uh, who got C's on their paper when they thought they needed B's. And she comes home and tells me these stories about these births gone wrong that mm -hmm. like got very dangerous and scary very quickly, you know, and right. I hear, you know, uh, people talking, you know, vilifying people who go to the hospital to give birth in this cold, sterile, unnatural environment. Um, and I'm like, are you crazy? It's, this is, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, most births are completely safe. And, and it's interesting because this is something that varies country by country too, right? Um, like Rachel in our department, her dissertations on. Right. Um, yeah. Right. And you know, like in the nether and like one of our friends here in Kansas City, her family's from the Netherlands, and there home births are very common. And it's also very common that if something goes wrong, you go to the hospital and they deal with it, right? Um, and there's a doctor on standby waiting to deal with it if they need it. And it's not, uh, you know, it's not an ideological thing. It's just that's the way you you do birth there. Whereas here, because it's a fringe thing, and you can, and this this sounds like I'm sort of taking a both sides are flawed stance which maybe i am in a certain extent but no, it's usually true you know i mean if like like Teresa will say like you know if at, at her hospital like yeah it is true that at hospital um, um ob units you know when you have people rushing in from the er because the home birth went bad yeah they do kind of resent it 
you know, because, and, and then at the, at the other hand, you know, you've got sort of the opposite thing too, where it's uh, vilifying hospital birth because home birth is the natural way to do it. And everything about, you know, the, teaching people to give birth the wrong way and blaming C-sections and, and, you know, these procedures that deal with births gone wrong on, you know, uh, poorly trained doctors and nurses is crazy. Right. But it becomes yeah. an ideological thing. It becomes, yeah, the, you know, the, the making making it ideological and making it into a movement are things that I, of course, understand the desire for that and in some cases understand why people think it's a need. But it's just more often than not so unnecessary and so pointless to do that. And well, I don't it creates know. more problems than it's worth. I mean, I guess like I, I also see both sides of wrong, right kind of a thing too. But I just think they serve a, a purpose. Like I think, you know, if, if – you know, women who feel C-sections were done without the appropriate steps come together and they talk about how C-sections is not a natural thing. Okay, they might seem really fringe, but they will have an impact on the medical establishment thinking about, rethinking, okay, when we do C-sections, maybe we should think about a procedure in which we explain why we're going to do it. Or, you know, it, it, it changes how medicine is performed. So I actually see it as That's fine. It's just making it into this whole, well... You know, I don't know. I'm coming the dangerously close to, to people saying making mountains out of molehills, and that's not at all what I mean to say. <laughs> but it's just, you know, to make it these – everyone's still making things into identity movements. Well, right. Well, And I, I really – I mean I, it, kind of with, with the whole looking backwards thing, I feel like we should know better than that at this point. That is well, exactly yeah, – that. this is ex – just by the way, just to interject briefly, this is exactly the sort of stuff that I thought I wanted to get into because all of this, na all of this natural stuff is so susceptible to this uh, ideology, identity movement kind of stuff where you have people who, you know, they eat their organic food, they, they take they, – they, you know, have – are advocates of natural medicine and natural childbirth and natural whatever else you can call natural. They, they, they run barefoot, of course. Um, they probably stand, uh, by the way, I, I stand, this is another goofy thing. Like, uh, I, I got rid of my desk a couple months ago. I've been standing, I have a standing desk now because chairs are evil. They're these things invented by evil capitalists to make us sit in, in cubicles and work all day. Discipline um, us. Yeah. Yeah. Just stand and work. Anyway, I guess you could fit that into the same camp. So there's, there's something there, there are, there's a case by case issues with each of these that are interesting yeah. but then there's the way that all of these things get wrapped up into this larger discourse of the of the natural the natural yeah and, natural narrative and how that gets wrapped up into identity and into ideologies that is very interesting and it seems like like i said like in the netherlands home birth is much more common and it's not as much of an ideological thing if at all right. i don't know right um yeah. so why is it in our society right now today it seems like all of these things converge, and there just seems to be a very, a very potent mix of. Uh, there's something. Uh, there's, there, there's something there. That's that's my. That's where I'll leave. That's my profound statement. <laughs> no, I, I agree you with you. Oh, go ahead, Archer. Well, I was gonna say I agree with you, and I I actually find I like going to conferences and hearing these kind of perspectives, and I like hearing kind of both sides of things. But I do resent sometimes where. I meet somebody and I feel like they vilify my partner without even knowing her, you know? And I think yeah. that's, it, it follows that narrative of like, oh, you know, I'm, I think this is an important topic and I think I would love to tell my partner about this different way of thinking about what she does. And she's usually open to it. But if you start the conversation of she's trained incorrectly and this is what she's doing wrong, it, it's this like, you just get this sense of like, whoa, this is some weird, um, 
natural narrative, like superseding anything else that you know about me or my partner. And I think that's, I don't like that, you know, and maybe I'm taking it too personally, but like it just totally shuts me off because otherwise I think, yeah, let's talk about the limitations of a medical approach to solving social problems or the limitations of certain medical procedures. I think that stuff is interesting to talk about on a case-by-case situation, but when you have these kind of broad strokes of medicine is bad, you know, um, I think you you miss a lot of the nuances that are probably more interesting. It reminds me of... um... Have I ever talked about my my experience eating lunch with Sam Brownback? No. <laughs> I should talk. This is funny. Yeah, when I so I at K State, I had um, I've 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 never been particularly religious, but I'm you know I had a bunch of friends who were quite religious at K State, and we took a trip uh, one summer. Uh, some people there had connections in D.C., and we went to Washington D.C. We we rented a van and drove. There were about nine or ten of us. And we stay. Jeffrey Charlotte, this journalist for Harper's, has written a book called *The Family*. You guys, yeah. Uh, one of the houses where the fam- we stayed there. <laughs> really, yeah. I'm shocked you haven't told this before. Yeah, um, yeah. We actually stayed there. Like, if you read his articles on it, like they talk about like the basket. They have like a particular basketball game they played. Like we played that with them. Um, <laughs> but anyway, here's the th- here's what I was getting at is that. That, you know, sort of hardcore... Wait, wait, Christian- for, for the benefit of the listeners, you should maybe explain briefly what the family is. Um, it's basically... Well, it's weird, because there's this sort of creepy, covert uh, uh, group of Christian fundamentalists that have a very e- sort of extreme right-wing agenda, and they have connections with politicians, um, both Democrats and Republicans, mostly Republicans, of course, but, like, Hillary Clinton apparently is is closely tied, has close relationships with some of these people, and, like, international leaders, and there's a couple handful of leaders that are, have somehow become enormously influential on the political scene. Like, this National Prayer Breakfast thing they do every year, uh, it makes big news every year, they sort of organize that, um, and they also have these homes in and around Washington, D.C. that are, like, old, they're, like, big, nice homes, and kids stay there and it's like a youth sort of home kind of thing and like most of the kids there were kids who um uh i mean there were sort of kids around our age or a little younger a little older that were had had problems of some sort and had turned to religion and this they they sort of were there recuperating or learning how to be a a virtuous faithful person right um, and I should say, I liked these people. They were nice people. It's not like it wasn't like the it wasn't like it was teeming with politics or anything. At least these homes weren't. You know, I mean, the organization is a different question, but um, the people there were were nice people. And but but as a as as a side effect, we got to like like Sam Brownback apparently stayed in this home when he was younger and has close ties to this group. So we got to I got to sit next to Sam Brownback and have lunch in the uh, Senate dining room. Um. Anyway, did I just cut out? You guys there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh. oh, yeah. My audio went weird for a minute. Yeah, it was weird for a second. <laughs> um, that was mine. My uh, headphones popped out, so uh, it was full okay. audio for a second. Uh, okay. So anyway, um, the thing that I'm getting to the thing that creeped me out, and the, the, the analogy I'm trying to make here is that uh, because I was with this group, they all assumed that, and, and, and I wasn't the only one. There were about three or four of us who were there because we thought spring break trip to D.C. sounds like fun. <laughs> Not necessarily a uh, Bible study with... Um, like with with congressmen fun like that was secondary like you know it was it was just a fun trip and but because we were there with this group we were assumed to be fellow travelers you know 
Mm -hmm. Um, And on every topic, you know, because that's sort of Christian right wing fundamentalism. There's a it's a subculture in our in our in our society where it's a totalist sort of culture too where Mm. with respect to entertainment you know what music you like what books you like what music you like how you dress um you know what you do for fun what kind of food you eat uh all of these things there's a right answer you know what i mean um and it's it's a it's a totalist culture in that sense if that makes sense and people would like come to me and say things and the, and I'm I try to give a good example but I can't maybe maybe it's it's sort of like Arturo you're at these conferences and people say sort of anti doctor anti medical things to you and you're like whoa and they just assume you believe that because you're there <laughs> right and right. that that kept happening you know and you see that with this this sort of natural naturalist uh, movement types too you know, um, where it's just assumed that all of these things are interlocking, you know, like it's just assumed that if you lo- if you think organic food is good, then obviously you didn't vaccinate your children. Yeah, there's a false consciousness associated mm-hmm. with and if you did, it's because you're not it's if you did, it's because you haven't fully bought into the, you know, into yeah. the movement yet. You know, like, like, you know, yeah, you know, John's a good Christian, but he still listens to heavy metal. Right. Um, like there's that kind of weird totalist aspect to these cultures and you see that with it just reminds me of christian fundamentalism in the way there's a natural a natural fundamentalism if you will because they're trying to save you right like oh i have this knowledge uh Mm -hmm. and i know you don't believe me but i really have to (laughs) impress upon you the importance of not running this way or not eating this way or not birthing this way (laughs) you know like it's it is this religious cultish element to it because what a and it's the religion. assumption that there's only one way to do things that really gets to Yeah. Me. Yeah, yeah, like, that's right. You know, I'm willing to believe that there are a lot of different ways one can successfully and um, safely deliver children. But the, yeah. the standard Western medicine version seems to have a pretty decent track record. You know, it's not, it's not that bad. I don't know why the, what the big deal is. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and that's the same for all of these things. There's, you know, I love this. We're gonna get so much hate mail. It's the future. <laughs> it's, it's past two thousand. We, we we're yeah. allowed to have multiple approaches to these things. Yeah, no, and I'm I'm actually open to like hearing about okay, you know, women's bodies being intervened by these entities and. You know what? What's going on in these situations? No, seriously. What are you like, talking about? Just... <laughs> that Is that wrong. what they call it these days? <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I don't know. Like, I I just have heard concerns that, like, you know, like people have birthing plans they put in place, and sometimes those deviate. You know, and doctors make these decisions without, in the opinions of the people who are involved, consulting them you know, very clearly, like they feel coerced into a decision. Right. And I'm, I think those can be interesting. That's an interesting project. And that's an interesting point to highlight, you know, that women feel like they lose agency in a, um, birthing context. Right. And, and I also like, I think it's interesting like to hear from the doctor's perspectives, because I'm sure what they're doing are are just playing the odds games, you know, like, yes, there's a 75% chance that this birth is going to be okay. But if we do a C-section, it's a 95% chance it's going to be okay. So I'm going to go for the 95% chance. <laughs> you know, I think those are interesting discussions to have. You know, is that always the right thing to do, to always do the safest procedure? Um, and 
I don't know. That's a, that's that's a that's a question that gets answered in every birthing situation, you know, and there is kind of like extreme points on both ends, you know, like I, well, it's not natural, you know, versus it's not safe. And I mean, just to like, uh, I mean, and just to, to sort of think about this historically too, is that I think that line of critique against um, birthing as being too medicalized and being treated as, you know, like some major surgery where the patient has something wrong with them and we have to go to remove the problem or whatever, Mm -hmm. that mindset, it has changed, right? I mean, uh, in the 50s and 60s, right, you always, you know, you hear like the the dads weren't in the delivery room, right? And it was Mm -hmm. this uh, very detached sort of experience because that that was the way the medical, to be it, make it safe, that's the way it had to be. And, you know, now, uh, like when Chloe was born, I was right there in the room and, in, and the room was not, I mean, it, it, in a lot of newer hospitals, at least the rooms feel more like hotel rooms than your, your, the surgery wing or the ICU wing looks like, you know, they don't look like that. They feel it. They, the, the idea of what giving birth in a hospital means and should look like has changed and it has become less quote unquote medicalized, I think. Right. Right. And I there's doulas who are involved in yeah. more of the process now. And, and some, and some hospitals are more or less open to that, obviously, mm-hmm. and, you know, but at the same time, yeah, it's, so it's, it's interesting. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> We're totally again, I, leave it, I leave it with profound. <laughs> oh, we totally, I can you know, be reminded of, of one of my favorite episodes of South Park, which is uh, the die hippie die episode where there's this, there's so many great lines you can use in real life from that episode. It's just like, you're doing that wrong. I've got some stuff you should read, <laughs> which I use all the time when I'm talking to my parents. It's pretty great. That was pretty good. I think that that right there could be the episode that discussion. But I, I yeah. also it was also my idea, and I think it went well. So oh, I, th- I think <laughs> it's maybe a little self-interested of me to say that. There was a point where I said <laughs> moolah instead of tula. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I heard that. <laughs> Which I'm now embarrassed about. Um, so as long as we leave this part in, acknowledging, because I was like searching for the word, and I was like "ula" something, so I said "ula," and I'm like, no. <laughs> Chris has something to say about it. Chris, why are you it's... defending the rioters? <laughs> I'm not defending anyone, but I am attacking anyone who's commenting on it. Anyone? Okay. <laughs> anyone should we everyone. not speak of it? Is it class should, warfare? There your... should be reporting on it. But, okay, th- t- to put all my cards on the table, this is motivated by a couple minutes before going online with you guys. I saw this article in the Huffington Post, which is, of course, going to be terrible. It's um, It's rounding up a bunch of British celebrities' tweets on the topic. <laughs> And not just British celebrities, but American celebrities as well. And there's there's just nothing constructive. And I know we're not looking in the right place to find anything worthwhile. But every com all the commentary I've heard so far about the riots, the the, the riots in London, the riots in London, have just been so embarrassing for the people speaking. That I'm shocked that they're still talking, it's, if that makes any kind of sense. It's one of those things where, um, I mean, and riots are like a classical sociological example, right? The crowds, right? Yeah. right? Crowd behavior, right? It's 
is it is it something to be interpreted solely as individual behavior and individuals running amok or is there some you know larger social structural uh causation at work and and then sort of the 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 common like response to that is but how can you excuse these people's behavior it's just criminality it's you know like it has to be one or the other right right and that's kind of what a lot of the discussion that i've seen is it's on the one you know people mostly on mostly criticizing those who are pointing to social structure as possibly being important here and social changes as being important as setting the context for this saying absolutely not you're just excusing the behavior of these crazed lunatics who have no respect well i think there is a danger of ascribing political significance to what otherwise might be a mob mentality um and i think as somebody who subscribes to ideas that, yeah, there are social movements in which rioting is part of that, you know, and Piven and Cloward, um, you know, wrote in the 70s all these ideas about how, you know, governments will only, you know, change to, you know, solve social problems if people mobilize and do go to the streets. And there is kind of a right-wing agenda of dismissing this stuff as simply irrational behavior. And while I think that's true... I also think it's true that sometimes I, uh, mobs are just mobs. You no, know? D- different. No, I think that I don't think Piven and Cloward applies at all, right? I mean, Piven and Cloward is about actual social movements that are organizing to affect change, um, and those maybe being called mobs as opposed to genuine mobs. And in this case, yeah. So let's say genuine mob, genuine, purposeless, uh, random, viol- randomly violent individuals going crazy mob. Um, that's still not to say that there isn't a social context in which that becomes attractive to people in which people feel they can get away with that in which people do that and in which those events occur, not necessarily rationalizing or justifying or trying to like give purpose to what they're doing, but just saying at a social level, there's something more at work here. That's like, that's different than, you know, um, criticizing violent social movements or, or, uh, sort of more confrontational social movements that are trying to do something. Right. Well, okay. Well, well, there's people who I think who say both. I mean, some people who say, yeah, there's some social conditions that engender mob-like activities. And then there's some people who say that this reflects, uh, you know, youth who feel like, you know, the government is not doing all that it could to provide jobs and opportunities. And maybe those arguments sometimes are one and the same. Uh, But I also just think sometimes people are just, you know, running amok but it's all (laughs) but they don't run amok in a vacuum is what i'm saying (laughs) right is that what you're angry about chris that like people that's part of it it's also the way in which people have tried to ascribe meaning to the to the riots whether it's by inserting race or inserting class politics or or anything like that um the uh, one of the common things i've heard is that These riots are a result, and this seems to be a generally reported thing across partisan lines, that the communities where these riots are taking place are pretty disenfranchised and pretty underserved as far as resources and generally working class or or poor and so on and so forth. And I still haven't heard any commentary from members of those communities or any attempt to get commentary from members of those communities. It's still just either professional pundits or professional leftists or, or the sort of talking heads pushing these things onto them. And I know that you need to fill up 
you know, airtime on your 24-hour news network these days with some sort of content. But we've seen enough of these kind of examples to know that these are dumb ways to talk about it. And it seems like in something as exciting as, as a riot, the really cool story that would also give you legitimate content would be to, to try and talk to the people involved in some way. I don't know. I've, I see, but that's, I've listened. I mean, I, I have not followed this story intensely or anything, so I'm not speaking as someone who's done a lot of research on this. Sure. But like on NPR, for example, I list overheard at least part of a piece where they were talking to people that lived in the neighborhood that owned shops and so on and so forth and getting their interpretations of what were happening. Their interpretations of what were happening were largely consistent with what we were talking about. People saying, oh, no, it's just criminals going crazy on the one hand, and then other people saying, well, you know, this is an impoverished neighborhood and, you know, th there's this breakdown in the legitimacy of social institutions and social order and, of course, that, you know. It wasn't like because they lived in the area or were a part of the riot that they somehow had a privileged insight into what caused it and what was going on. No, but they're the ones who have, they, they do have the privilege of talking for their, their community, at least in, in so much as they live there. Well, yeah, I, I think, More I, than I anyone think else the issue does. is, and if that stuff turns out to be the same stuff, that's fine, but it's coming from a better place, a more, a more, yeah. No, I mean, that's, this, is like, this is like this is like journalism 101, right? Obviously. Right, precisely. Yeah. But, but I, wanna, I mean, but, but the point I was making is that if in the case of a of the true non-movement associated purposeless riot, right, you wouldn't necessarily expect the people in the riot to necessarily have some insight into what's the, the sort of what 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 the underlying social conditions that led to that or something. I'm saying that I'm just the, 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 the distinction to be made is is here to me is between purposeful rioting like where there's an impetus and a cause and you can point to all sorts of motivations to the people involved versus maybe is it possible that you can not have that and just have you know uh, uh, the the social legitimacy in order break down to the point that people just think they can get away with this stuff and it's acceptable behavior and then if that's the case does that mean it's all about just individuals who don't have respect no there's like this, right. this social story about about the institutions in the in the in the area about um the culture and the norms about how to behave and who, who has legitimacy and who to respect and who not and you know so into those situations you can read all sorts of stuff about about racial dynamics about econ socioeconomic status but you know that's different than saying that those things were like the motivation. Like, like right, these, these, right. these riots were just the rage of an oppressed. Cl no, maybe not. That doesn't mean that those didn't play a role in 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 the creating the context. I, 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 see, so here's my question for you, Chris. You started yeah. this saying that anybody talking about this should just stop. So tell me, should I just stop? <laughs> Are we just yeah. proving your point? Okay. Well, I'm done. <laughs> But by my own logic, so should I. <laughs>